This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Last week, a comically overwrought ad for Australia's 60 Minutes TV show hit the headlines here. We thought they were our best friends, but it looks like they've ditched us. Step right up for a fast Chinese buck. But having asked if we've gone soft on China and left our cobbers in the lurch, what did the report reveal when it actually aired across the ditch this past week? Also, we talked to a photographer freshly honoured as a master of his craft, and we asked him about depicting disgruntled nimbies. Have you taken one of these photos yourself? Definitely not. No, of course I have. But before all that, while record-breaking floods threatened to sweep away bridges in Canterbury earlier this week, cyclists flooding a bridge up north sent sections of the media into overdrive. That's what you get when you delay, you frustrate, you won't engage and you won't get on with it. And you build a cycleway or cycle lane across the Auckland Harbour Bridge. You won't do it. I'm talking about the decision of more than 1,000 cyclists, Auckland's new anarchists, who didn't let the law, a rickety gate and a few police officers, stop them from riding over the Auckland Harbour Bridge uh, at the weekend. I support them. That was Duncan Garner telling his AM show listeners last Monday that he backed the bikers on the bridge who fought the law and won sort of, the day before. Organisers said that forcing their way onto the Auckland Harbour Bridge was not actually the purpose of their protest, but if part of the plan was to attract media attention, well, that certainly worked. People lose their lives for change, albeit apartheid is on a slightly different scale to scaling the Harbour Bridge by bike. Now, what South Africa had to do with it, Duncan Garner didn't say, though he wasn't the only one invoking apartheid-era divisions. In his newsletter and podcast, The Kaka, commentator Bernard Hickey said that cycling in 2021 was a bit like the tour in 1981. What appears to be a, you know, not political issue um, turns into something of a culture war that defines a generation. I think we're going to see that with cycleways. And uh, we're already seeing the battle lines forming and it will be very interesting to see what the Climate Commission comes up with next week with its final recommendations. And that's something else we'll look at here on Media Watch next week. But Bernard Hickey reckoned that, like the Springbok tour, everyone seems to be on one side or the other of the urban roads conflict today, including the media, as we'll hear. Now, one former Prime Minister, John Key, famously claimed he couldn't remember where he stood on the Springbok tour when he was a 21-year-old university student. And on Monday, Duncan Garner tried to pin down the current Prime Minister on whether she was with the cyclists or against them. Yeah, well, look, you know, here I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with what we need to achieve. Like, we need to be able to connect uh, the North Shore and, you know, the Auckland CBD through other modes of transport that aren't just buses and cars. And over on News Talk ZB at the same time, Mike Hosking also seemed in favour. It would be fabulous to have a bike lane on a bridge. I'd love a bike lane on a bridge and a walking lane. Bit of a surprise there as Mike Hosking has railed against cycling in the city in the past as the voice of the motorist, which probably helped his show get the sponsor. The Mike Hosking Breakfast with the new Land Rover Discovery. News Talk ZB. But what Mike Hosking was really saying on Monday was cycling's nice to have, but only if it doesn't crowd out other cars. A scooter lane and uh, free parking and like a parking building on the bridge and free parking for the first 20 minutes and all of that sort of stuff. But we're not having it. And it's not happening. So if it's not happening, don't stand there on a Sunday wasting everybody's time. Thing is, though, those cyclists in Auckland last Sunday didn't just stand there, they barrelled past the police and onto the bridge, and listeners of the Mike Hosking Breakfast on ZB didn't like that. John says, How dare the pedal pushers bully their opinions on the public? 
innocently going about their day. The absolute arrogance and self-righteousness is mind-blowing. Who the hell do they think they are? They're belligerent lawbreakers. Once again, the motoring public is being made to bow to these holier-than-thou lycra jockeys. And there was plenty more where that came from on the Mike Hosking Breakfast. You thought the same thing I did. Mike, large size, cyclists, no wonder they're hated. Why do they feel so entitled? I do a lot of driving and cyclists along with buses are the bane of my life. All those cyclists should have been arrested yesterday. Mike Hosking went on to compare them to the mongrel mob, much like his wife and ZB colleague Kate Hawksby on her show before dawn that same day. Actually, one arrest, we should be grateful. That's more than, I guess, the mongrel mob got for blocking roads in Hawke's Bay for that tonguey. So, I mean, at least on the Harbour Bridge, we did wind up with one arrest. What an absolute shambles. Motorists yet again being treated like second-class citizens. But when Kerry McIver got on the air after those two on ZB that day, it was personal. She told ZB listeners she was caught in the chaos during her own Sunday drive to the North Shore to look for a house to buy. Though, at first, she loved seeing the families and the kids out on their bikes. They were having a lovely time and you have to learn somehow and what better time to do it on the Sunday morning. But she didn't realise then that they were part of a protest that would slow her down even more. Like, there weren't just little family groups out. There were, well, what seemed like thousands of the hooers coming from everywhere. If you've seen the mice in Australia, you know, the hordes of mice sweeping through the farms, if you can imagine... Mice in lycra and on bikes, that's what they looked like. Rats in lycra, Kerry McIver called them in her opinion piece for ZB's website later, and on the air the insults kept coming. No difference between these law-breaking, entitled, demanding gits and the law-breaking, entitled gits on motorbikes. What difference is there between those tits and the tits on motorcycles? Other than the fact that the motorcyclists actually pay to be on the road. They want to do it right now. They will have their way, and the rest of us can just bloody well put up with it. And having labelled hundreds of her fellow Aucklanders gits, tits, hooers, rats and freeloaders, Kerry McIver also condemned them as rich, snobby hypocrites. Sitting around Auckland's leafy suburbs, those with a median house price of around about $3 million, they would have sipped their Chardonnay or their Pinot Noir, or for the younger ones, kombucha, and thrilled to the excitement of retelling the story of the day they took over the Harbour Bridge as they pushed the gourmet sausages on the barbecue at the beach pad in Omaha. Or they won't have cycled to the beach pad in Omaha because how would they get the toys up there and the faro hampers? Now that's pretty sustained abuse and stereotyping of a single group of people. But was this really Kerry McIver's Sincerely Hill view or just an overall effort to rack up talkback callers on an obviously divisive issue? Well, in his online newsletter, More Than a Fielding, David Slack, who was one of the MCs at the pro-bike protest on Sunday, reckoned that Kerry McIver might actually have been having a stab at satire. However... To make it work, you can't just describe the ghastly company you keep and their surroundings and ascribe it all to a bunch of strangers. Touché. But David Slack's main point was that Kerry McIver was right there last Sunday and she could have walked amongst the crowd and found out what they were really all about rather than just form drive-by opinions about them from behind the wheel. And from that distance, Kerry McIver also ridiculed any environmental motivation that the cyclists on Sunday might have had. Spout your smug, sanctimonious tosh about how, you know, you are single-handedly saving the planet by biking to and from work. Are we saving the planet? No. You're just demanding something right now, and you do not care who's inconvenienced while you make your point.
But part of their premise is that more people on bikes will pretty quickly speed up jaunts over the bridge for everybody, including drivers wanting to buy a new home on the North Shore or whatever. But while they were portrayed on talk radio as an anarchic mob, the Get Across group is a properly organised trust which was formed after the Skypath campaign which grew out of a similar bike event back in 2009. And what they want is not the world, and now, as Kerry McIver said, but a three-month trial on the bridge next summer. However, those who dialled into Kerry McIver on Monday followed the opinion leader. I wholeheartedly agree with what you just said. Um, these are guys that are not true cyclists, they go out on a Sunday, they all drive BMWs and Range Rovers and they ride on a Sunday with their very expensive bikes, with their very expensive Lycra and I guess because they're not allowed to rebel because of their jobs, this is their only way of their little rebellion. Well, like that guy, the perceived lawlessness was the trigger for many ZB callers. And while the ZB hosts on the air painted a pretty vivid picture of that, the pictures on TV also reinforced it. Passion turned to aggression, and despite the police's best efforts, this small line of defence stood no chance against the massive cyclists desperate to bike the bridge. TVNZ News also showed the Greens' Julianne Genta telling the cyclists that they were on the right side of history, and then News Hub zeroed in on the blood that was spilt. One person was arrested, and they appear to have grazed a knee in the process. Meanwhile, Talk Radio reckoned more cyclists should have been arrested. As TVNZ News reported on Tuesday, some community leaders in the city thought the same. With just one arrest, some see a double standard. When you're handling poorer people out south, you get treated one way by the police. And when you're managing people who are wealthy and in Lycra, you've got a completely different approach by, by the police. But if the police won't make the cyclists pay, ZB's listeners wanted to make them pay to use the roads. Kate, at what point do the cyclists start paying to use the roads, just like everybody else? Um, Kate, who do they think they are? And some more on Julianne Genta. And so did ZB host Heather Duplessy-Allen. All of a sudden I'm starting to figure this thing in my brain where we start to toll the cyclists. Really, really big price, really big price to go on the bridge. The bridge that they build for themselves. Anyway, listen. And over on RNZ's checkpoint the same day, one of Lisa Owen's listeners actually set a price point. Boy, has it got you people texting us at the rate of knots. This person says, how about charging cyclists 15 bucks a crossing? OK. The appetite for tolling the cyclists, as well as troubling them, is pretty strong on talk radio, it seems. As it happens, Media Watch's Hayden Donnell was there last Sunday, though he wasn't on a bike. He was observing the rally as part of an upcoming story all about urban planning and how it affects the way we all live. The police efforts to defend that off-ramp were probably a little bit of theatre. For one thing, there was already a traffic management plan in place because authorities had been aware of this protest that was going to take place. Uh, Waka Kotahi had already closed two lanes because they thought that maybe the cyclists were going to head over. The impression that I got was, despite those images, which I think created probably a bit of a mistaken impression, or were there just to give people the impression that authorities had tried to stop this. Uh, despite that, I think that authorities were pretty aware that this was going to happen. So on the matter of lane closures there, as we heard on talk radio, a lot of people were annoyed that the occupation of those lanes that held people up, this was sort of irresponsible and unfair. Would those lanes have been closed anyway if there was a police barrier up at the time? Waka Kotahi had put out a traffic alert the day before quietly and they'd closed two lanes themselves. So 
it wasn't actually the cyclists that were doing it. It was the traffic authorities that were obviously prepared for cyclists to go over the bridge in this way because they'd done it before in 2009. There was a kind of awareness that this was going to happen. There's been criticism from people like Simon Wilson in the Herald saying, you know, Waka Kotahi went as far as closing these two lanes, but then they didn't try and alleviate the stress on the traffic you can move the lanes on the bridge over, and they could have moved it so it was three lanes going northbound and three lanes going southbound. They didn't do that, so there was only two lanes going northbound and four lanes going southbound, uh, and that got more people angry. Well, you mentioned earlier, Hayden, that there wasn't necessarily an you know, atmosphere of you know, menace or aggression there, which is possibly the images people saw on television, but this is an issue that makes a lot of people angry. Yeah, it's been really weird to see the tone of the coverage, uh, the tone of the coverage of the event and the way that the cyclists there have been portrayed because uh, what I experienced, it wasn't aggressive at all. It was a whole bunch of families. There was another family with their stroller going over the bridge with me. I only went over because it had seemed like it had been opened up by the authorities and I could nick home to the North Shore. So the rage in general, I find a little bit, I mean, I understand it. It's been a wedge issue for a long time. But logically, I don't understand it because really cyclists are the best thing out there for motorists. If you think about it, if you just design streets for more cars, then more people are going to drive. That's going to create more traffic, the traffic that you hate, and that's going to get you stuck in congestion. So really, the more cyclists that motorists have uh, hooning down the side of the street, (laughs) the more open their streets are actually going to be because every one of those cyclists is, of course, a car off the road. So, okay, so we've dealt with the lawlessness, the lane closures, uh, now the lycra. Um, Another common theme seemed to be uh, that this was a very middle-class crowd. Was it an overly uh, lycra-clad or, I mean, identifiably non-diverse group of people that was um, there at Erin Park? Kerry McIver actually identified it pretty correctly. She said, oh, I saw families out with their children, and I saw all these types of people, and it was quite nice before she decided that they were rats teeming out of every side street. It wasn't just lycra-clad, middle-aged men like uh, uh, sipping their lattes in their Hearn Bay villas like some of the critics imagined, but it wasn't, I don't think, a diverse reflection of all of Auckland. It did seem reasonably middle-class. It seemed reasonably Pākehā, though not universally Pākehā. And I think that probably reflects the people who have time to advocate for cycling and campaign for cycling probably have a bit of spare time on their hands and a bit of resources up their sleeve. And that's really actually, though, what that protest is trying to change, that they want to make cycling safer and more universal and accessible for more people. Hayden Donnell, who witnessed the Liberate the Lane bike protest on the Auckland Harbour Bridge last Sunday. But it wasn't all one-way traffic in the media. The NZME stable housing News Talk ZB is also home to The Herald. And earlier this month, Herald senior writer Simon Wilson wrote this under the headline, Cycling the Auckland Harbour Bridge is a climate issue. Cycling on the bridge challenges two important ideas, that the bridge is full and that everyone will keep driving. Come on, Minister, trial it now. Let's find out. Simon Wilson even urged Herald readers to bring a bike to last Sunday's Liberator Lane rally in that article, which was published under the banner of Covering Climate Now because the Herald's one of 250 media outlets from around the world that committed to climate change coverage two years ago. Stablemate News Talk ZB, however, did not. Now, after all the noise about liberating the lane and lawlessness on the bridge last Sunday, the story moved on in a big way on Friday when Transport Minister Michael Wood unveiled huge changes to the multi-billion dollar transport plan, including this. In the 21st century, it's time 
that Aucklanders are able to walk or cycle across their own harbour. And so as a part of this package, we are confirming that we will be building a new walking and cycling bridge across the harbour. Reaction was immediate from the pro-cycle lobby and from the transport industry. On RNZ's 9 to noon, the aptly named Chris Carr, from one of New Zealand's oldest transport firms, didn't think a near-billion-dollar bridge for bikes and walkers would ease overall transport problems much, but he did say... Cycleways uh, particularly need to be separated from uh, from heavy traffic and certainly uh, you know, that's something that nobody would, I, I think, disagree with. Well, there is one person. Look at the downtown cycleway if you're in Auckland. Look at that pink downtown cycleway. Spot me a cyclist on it. It's, it's embarrassing. Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB on Friday morning there, talking to Auckland Chamber of Commerce Chief Michael Barnett. It'll never get built. Even if it did, it won't be 785. It'll be well in excess of a billion. It'll be well in excess of five years. That would be your understanding too, I would assume, wouldn't it? And some cycling advocates also thought a new bridge was overkill. And the Herald Simon Wilson told RNZ's Jesse Mulligan... He had reservations too. Um, I um, am, am <laughs> I was going to say thrilled, but I'm not thrilled. Um, I have I'm in two minds about this, and it it looks as if it might be one of those projects that um, uh, some people like, lots of people hate, lots of people like, and lots of people hate. Um, <laughs> And and maybe just doesn't happen. Before that government announcement on Friday, Bernard Hickey, who had likened the cycling debate to the 81 tour, made this observation about the bigger picture. When you look ahead in the next 10 or 20 years, one of the big battles is going to be between suburban car-driving commuters and people living closer to the centre of the major cities who want to use those roads and motorways between their homes and work and school for cycling and for walking in a safe way. And if so, the media will have to get a lot better at reporting this complicated conflict over our streets, with people on each side asking, which side are you on? On Midweek Media Watch this week, our weekly catch-up with the Lately Show here on RNZ National, I talked to Susanna Leotawa about how Naomi Osaka's media boycott at the French Open escalated. And we also talked about who had their eyes on the prizes last week at the annual ceremony for journalism, the Voyager Media Awards. And among the winners on the night was Brett Phibbs, named as Photographer of the Year. The judges said simply he is a master of his craft. So who better then for Hayden Donnell to turn to this week to explain one kind of image that's become a modern-day cliché in our news photography. If you've ever read a story about a contentious local issue, you'll have seen this photo. The story could be about a housing development, a cycle path or a safety upgrade to an intersection. It doesn't matter, the illustration will always be the same. In the foreground, a person stands with their arms folded, a stern expression on their face. In the background is the sight of the progress they're opposing. This style of photo has been employed repeatedly in recent times by Stuff. Its story on a cycleway in central Auckland contains no less than three photos of Soul Bar operations manager Ji-Ling Ching standing with her arms crossed on the green-painted path. Another story about a 10-home development in Cambridge features the folded arms of an obviously disgruntled resident who's worried that housing will sully the increasingly unaffordable town's reputation. But Stuff is far from the only media organisation employing this format. It's a regular feature on the popular Angry People in Local Newspapers Facebook page, as well as the much less frequented local version Sad Faces of the NZ Herald. 
In 2017, the blog Greater Auckland highlighted the photo genre in its game of NIMBY bingo. Overseas, the Toronto Star used the visual cliché so often that Toronto Life composed a complete taxonomy of its crosstown rivals' angry people with their arms folded. But why are these angst-infused illustrations so common? And why can't media organisations give up this photographic habit, no matter how much they overindulge? I put that question to Voyager snaffling photographer Brett Fibbs, who's taken his own fair share of these photos. Kia ora, Brett. Welcome to Media Watch. Thank you for having me. So when I say angry person with their arms crossed photo, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that old chestnut. Um, yeah, I do, yeah. What would you say are the key elements of this photo? The key elements are a person standing, usually in the foreground, with their arms crossed, with some information that's in the story um, in the background. Now, what would you think the story is about? It's usually a resident disgruntled about something, whether it's a cycleway or some unit going up in a uh, in a private uh, neighbourhood. Have you taken yeah. one of these photos yourself? Definitely not. No, of course I have. No, every photographer, I'm sure, in their um, career has taken a few of these photos. Sometimes it happens naturally and sometimes it is prompted. I try not to nowadays, but sometimes you can't help it. Why are they so ubiquitous? Without being kind of like bagging anyone in particular with photographers, some of them it's an easy kind of go-to to get the point across because folded arms are pretty pretty kind of stern and it kind of makes a state. Every time someone, you know, usually when someone folds your arms, they're either listening pretty intently or um, disagreeing with someone. Is there an element of mischievousness involved from the photographer's perspective? Is it actually that they kind of don't like these people and so they put them in these poses that kind of make them a little bit look a little bit stupid. Yeah, sometimes it's probably a little bit, I don't care about the job thing, but um, sometimes the, they just do it naturally and, they, and you just go, oh, okay, this story's not what I want to do and you kind of go off the flow. So you, know, you kind of get a bit lazy, I suppose, in a way. Is it usually the angry person who floats having their arms crossed or is it usually the photographer that initiates the arms crossing? That's a loaded question. I think it's a bit of both sometimes. Can you put a percentage on it? 50 50? 60 40? 30 70? 30 70. Photographer normally goes, hold your arms, blah, blah, blah. So photographers 30%, angry person 70%. Yeah, the angry person with their arms folded. There's a lot of photos in there with angry people with their arms folded. Is reform needed in this area? What are some alternatives? Be more creative with the lighting, you know, put them in, in a situation where they can either lean on something or like a fence or stand there. Or, you can do a number of things. What about a scream, like an angry scream? No. I've got some other suggestions. The fingers? Two or one. Either. Yeah, well, you know, you probably wouldn't get it published, but, you know, that's a good idea, actually. I like that one. What else expresses anger? Is this the problem that we just don't Point. have enough ways to express anger non-verbally in a still photo? Exactly, you can't. And some people some people don't look like they're angry. They kind of have this kind of face that smiles all the time. So that's problematic as it goes too. I suppose a folding of the arms and look angry, that's the kind of package. If you were advising your best friend, they want to be angry about something in a still photo and you want to advise them how not to look stupid, what would you tell them to do? Don't fold your arms. Just squint? Just squint. Look intense. Lean on something. Put your hands in front of you, nice cash, kind of lean, and the photographer will do the, do the rest. Thank you so much for your time, Brett. No problem. 
That was Brett Phibbs, named 2021 Photographer of the Year at the annual Voyager Media Awards last week, talking there to Hayden Donnell about the art of depicting the disgruntled NIMBY. Late last week, a rather overwrought advert from Australia raised eyebrows and some laughter in New Zealand when it popped up online. We thought they were our best friends. We're that big, mate. We're not ringing China up and saying anything other than would you like more milk. But it looks like they've ditched us. Step right up for a fast Chinese buck. That preposterous promo even made the 6pm news on TV3 like this. 60 Minutes in Australia has released a dramatic trailer for a new episode, which asks if New Zealand has ditched its trans-Tasman neighbour for China. It labels us New Xiland, a play on the Chinese president's name, which our Race Relations Commissioner has labelled offensive. And it's not the first time some 60 Minutes men have made this country cringe, crossing the ditch to talk to our Prime Minister. It's interesting how much people have been counting back to <laughs> the conception, as it were. Channel 9 reporter Charles Woolley there back in February 2018 asking an expectant Jacinda Ardern and Clark Gayford when their baby was conceived. Now, while that's clearly nobody else's business, New Zealand's relationship with China and Australia's position on that is a public issue. But the horror movie-type treatment in that trailer was certainly a stretch, especially when stretched around selective soundbites from News Talk ZB host Mike Hosking and Auckland Chamber of Commerce chief Michael Barnett. When News Talk ZB drive host Heather Duplessy-Allen told the Channel 9 reporter Tom Steinfurt last week that the New Zealand promo was over the top, he answered awkwardly that that wasn't his fault. Uh, look, in terms of the, the lines in the promo, I don't, I don't write the promo. I'm busy scripting a story for the yeah. weekend at the moment. So, uh, yeah, as I said, that'll be on Sunday night. Either. And uh, I'd encourage people to have a look at that because we do get uh, both sides of the debate. But even before his report aired in Australia last Sunday, Michael Barnett told NewsHub he reckoned that Tom Steinfurt was pushing the Australian government's position. The questioning that, that I confronted on the, the day of the interview was really to try and set me up. I just hope that I was successful in maintaining my values. Now, Tom Steinfurt's employers in Australia denied that that was the case. Channel 9 told NewsHub that Tom Steinfort is an impartial journalist who sought a wide range of opinions. And they're encouraging Kiwis to watch the story this Sunday to come to their own conclusions. And also urging people to watch Tom Steinfort's report this week was News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking, who appeared prominently in it and endorsed it last Monday like this. Very good piece. Is it? Very solid balance You may piece. say so yourself. No, 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 forget me. Even though it opens with you, you're the starring... It's, it's, I'm not the star of the show at no. all. What I'm saying is it's a classic 60 Minutes piece. It's actually worth watching. Instead okay. of getting all excited about the trailer last week, yeah. watch it okay. and learn something. So it's on YouTube yeah. if people want to watch it. And YouTube is indeed the place to view it. TVNZ does have the rights to show 60 Minutes stuff from Australia, but it hasn't broadcast Tom Steinfurt's report yet, introduced like this on Australia's Channel 9 last Sunday night. In calling out China for its increasing aggression, human rights violations and COVID cover-ups, Australia is paying a hefty price for storming the high moral ground. A furious Beijing is doing everything it can to punish us economically via trade tariffs. Tom Steinfort claimed that his request to talk to the main players here, including the Prime Minister and the Minister of Trade, were all rebuffed. Possibly why the report, which asked, is China taking over New Zealand, kicked off in the studio of Mike Hosking, who said it already has. 
They say Talkback Radio is the voice of the people, and in New Zealand, there's plenty to talk about right now. Here's the simple truth. China basically owns us. After that, Tom Steinfort talked to Michael Barnett, then Auckland winemaker David Babich, and then an under-pressure Australian winemaker and Malcolm Davis, an expert at an Australian international affairs think tank who thinks New Zealand is letting down its Five Eyes allies. I think that's very clear. Um, We have a saying in Australia, uh, wolf warrior diplomats, and I think that's very accurate, uh, where China, I think, thinks about diplomacy in 19th century terms. Now, Tom Steinfoot made a big deal in his report of New Zealand refusing to stand with Five Eyes allies, in his words, in joint statements on China. But New Zealand and Australia's recent joint statements on the Uyghurs in northwest China and democracy in Hong Kong were skated over like this. The Prime Minister pointed out New Zealand has made its own differently worded statements condemning China, rather than doing so in conjunction with its allies. This week, Stuff's Thomas Coughlin also reported that last weekend, New Zealand said it would join a world trade organisation dispute that Australia has raised with China over barley tariffs. And while Tom Steinfort's 60 Minutes piece would have been well in the can by then, he could have mentioned that in his online article for Channel 9, in which he said our government is spooked by him looking into our relations with China. In his 60 Minutes TV report, though, Tom Steinfort ran a yellow highlighter across these comments in the Chinese Communist Party-controlled media. New Zealand has been charting a very positive and clear path in relation to China, in stark contrast to Australia's hostile actions, which could result in major gains for New Zealand products and services in the Chinese market as Australia stands to lose. But while Tom Steinfort hinted at New Zealand profiting from Australia's exports being hammered by Chinese retaliation, he didn't really dig too deep on that. But back in April, Four Corners, the flagship current affairs show of Australia's public broadcast at the ABC, did. Investigative reporter Stephen Long's conclusion was this. There's no doubt the toll on industries like lobster and wine is terrible. Yet the reality is China's sanctions have only had a minor impact on the overall economy. Coal that would have gone to China has been sold to other countries. Even Bali's found new markets. And ironically, despite the punishment, Australia's trade with China actually increased last year. And you didn't just have to take the reporter's word for it in that program. Professor Rory Medcalf at the National Security College at the Australian National University backed that up. It's fascinating that during the year that China was punishing Australia economically through all sorts of levers, uh, the overall size of uh, Australian exports to China actually grew because of the iron ore price and the sheer scale of our iron ore exports and China's demand. Fascinating, certainly. And none other than Australia's Trade Minister Dan Tian confirmed that for the ABC in the same programme. From January 2021, we had a a $10 billion surplus, which is the highest on record. So the resilience of our economy has stood up incredibly well. Now, ironically, the same day that 60 Minutes aired its piece, Chinese media said that China's President Xi Jinping had urged the Chinese media and those wolf warrior diplomats to adopt a less aggressive tone with more openness and modesty in the world in future. But it seems it's not only in China that reporters push the government's policy on international affairs and diplomacy. 
Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back again with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.